I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, The Murder of Muriel Lindsay. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. Muriel Lindsay had just turned 40 and she was feeling good about her life. She had a well-paid job at the post office on West Georgia Street in Vancouver, where she'd made a number of friends. And a little over a year before, She'd fought a battle against cancer and survived. Muriel found it strange to look in the mirror. Her big blue eyes were still the most prominent feature of her face, but her long blonde hair had grown back dark and curly after the chemo, and she wore it short for the first time in her life. Muriel spent Valentine's Day 1996 with her mother Marjorie and her cousin Carol. They had lunch on Granville Island, and she told them how excited she was about moving out of the Comox Street boarding house, where she'd lived for eight years. She'd signed the lease on a one-bedroom apartment on Beach Avenue with a view of English Bay, and she was moving at the end of the month. Most of her things were already packed. Over lunch, she planned to choose a colour for the new carpet that her cousin Carol and Carol's husband were installing as a homewarming present for her. Muriel never made it to her new apartment. Two days after lunch with her mother and cousin, Muriel Lindsay was found beaten to death in her room, just a block from St Paul's Hospital, where she'd been born in 1956. Muriel grew up in the exclusive British properties area of West Vancouver. Her father, Eric Lindsay, was a celebrity photographer and reporter for the Vancouver Sun, and her mother Marjorie stayed home to look after Muriel and her older brother Kent. Muriel's biggest influence growing up was her grandmother, Muriel May, a successful realtor who had the exclusive rights to sell property for the British Pacific Properties in the 1950s. And she was also a shareholder of West Vancouver's Panorama Film Studios. The studio produced movies such as Carnal Knowledge, McCabe and Mrs Miller, and the television series The Littlest Hobo. Kent and Muriel learned to swim and to sail. They took art classes and they spent plenty of time outdoors. Muriel and Kent went to Westcott Elementary in West Vancouver and later to Pauline Johnson. Marjorie talked Eric into selling their rancher and moving to a two-bedroom apartment in a new luxury building by the ocean that locals called, and still do call, the Pink Palace. Shortly after the family moved into the new apartment, Eric was offered a job writing television news for CBC's The National in Toronto. Marjorie, Kent and Muriel moved a year later and spent the first summer in Oshawa, near Eric's family. Muriel was close in age to her cousin Barb, and Barb says that when she first met her, Muriel was a bright and happy 12-year-old. 
She had really pretty blonde hair. She always wore it straight in the middle and big blue. We call them pop eyes because <laughs> they were so big. Like that's the first thing you'd notice about her were her eyes. So tell me about her. What did she like to do? Oh, she was a very animated person. She was very happy and liked to do things, liked to be active. And she was always looking to do something fun or different. And she liked music and dancing and... And, of course, coming from Vancouver to Oshawa must have been a big letdown (laughs) because it was much smaller. The family moved to Toronto and the kids were enrolled at Jesse Ketchum High School. And then two years later, things started to unravel quickly. Eric and Marjorie split up for the second and the last time. Kent and Marjorie moved back to West Vancouver to live with Marjorie's mother. And Eric and Muriel stayed in Toronto. Muriel, now 14, was taken out of Jesse Ketchum, a public school in the Yorkville area of Toronto, and put into Branksome Hall, a swanky private school for girls. Here's Barb. When they moved to Toronto, I would go and visit them in Toronto, and they lived in Rosedale, which is a very nice part of Toronto. She had a lot of freedom to go where she wanted to, and of course, Toronto being a big city... It was kind of fun. She, she was a city girl. So as a city kid, she was able to take advantage of all those things mm-hmm. that a city has to offer. And mm-hmm. she knew how to get around in a city. She was not afraid. Like, she wasn't a timid girl at all. Being separated from her mother, grandmother and brother was really hard for Muriel. I know she really missed Vancouver. She did miss Vancouver when she was in Toronto. So I wasn't surprised when she went back there. She was very close with her mom. They... Probably each other's best friends. Muriel bounced back and forth between her parents and finished school in Toronto. Her parents split and hit her hard, though. And by the time she was 18, her friends and family were noticing that the once happy, extroverted girl was undergoing a personality change. Muriel broke up with a boyfriend and had a nervous breakdown. She was diagnosed as borderline psychotic and her mother stepped in and brought her back to Vancouver. Muriel's mental health stabilised once she was back with her mother and grandmother. She reconnected with her cousin Barb in the late 70s, when Barb came out to Vancouver from Ontario. I went out west. Like I went to university and I went out west. And I did connect with her. She knew Vancouver and she loved it. She loved hanging on the beach and she knew lots of people and all the little shops and things and and Chinatown and, you know, she was a real Vancouver kid, that's for sure. That was her comfort zone right there. In 1983, Muriel moved into an apartment in a heritage house in Mole Hill, part of Vancouver's West End. The house was run by an elderly lady known to everyone as Mrs Henry. Like many of the single-family homes built in the early years of the 20th century, the house had been modified into a boarding house in the 1940s. Muriel had a room on the second floor above the entry, and it suited her well. The rent was inexpensive, she loved the West End, and she was allowed to keep her two much-loved cats there. When Muriel was hired by Canada Post, she finally had a job that paid decently and came with benefits. She could think of saving for the future and moving into a place of her own. She worked the afternoon shift as a letter sorter and liked walking to work and back home, usually with a co-worker. When she came down with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma the year before she died, 
She'd fought that battle and won. Here's Barb. She was sick, you know. She had cancer. And she really fought that battle on her own. She wouldn't let her mom go with her to the clinic. Her dad came out, I think, after the treatments were all done, but she didn't want a big fuss made. So she really battled that one on her own. Carol was telling me that none of her co-workers knew. She, she, she would have kept smell. that private. That, but at some amazing. point she lost her hair, I'm sure, because yeah. like I can remember the picture. Her hair is short and dark. And we started to laugh because she was the blonde, you know, and had this straight hair. And all mm. of a sudden it was wavy and dark. And it actually looked kind of cute on her. But while things were finally picking up for Muriel, there were some disturbing events in the months leading up to her death. She'd complained to a family that two men who lived in the same boarding house had bothered her on different occasions. This is a letter that Muriel wrote to her father, Eric, shortly before her murder. It's read by Megan Dunn. My crazy neighbour is back and now another nightmare. I can't find another pair of jeans. I think I'll get a new lock on my door and won't give Miss Henry a key. She has those two guys for dinner on Sundays. I think they might have stolen my key and got a duplicate. One night, my door opened. I looked out and Juan was walking down the stairs. I am not just paranoid, am I? I shall do that with a new lock. This is not good. 3 a.m. or so. What a creep. I'd better go get lunch now. Then I'm off to the stores. Hope all is well with you. Love, Muriel. Muriel told her cousin Carol about Juan. She said that he often harassed her verbally and that she was afraid of him. She told her brother Kent that one of her much-loved cats had gone missing. She made up posters with a phone number, not her address, and stuck them up around her neighbourhood. But instead of a phone call, she found a hand-delivered note slipped under her door saying that she owed money for her cat's vet bill. Muriel told her brother Kent that she thought that someone had kidnapped her cat. She was so concerned that she reported it to the police. An officer was sent out to take down the information and he filed a report. The cat, though, was never found. And then things kept getting stranger. A six-month subscription to the Vancouver Sun was taken out in her name. Then two magazines started arriving at her West End apartment. Somebody made a donation on her behalf to the United Way for $120. When I first read Kim Boland's article in the Vancouver Sun in 2006, I didn't realise the significance of all of this. But to terrorise Muriel in this way, the person had to have access to her home. They had to have known her apartment number in the house and they had to have access to her credit card or the mail that came to residence at Muriel's Comox Street rooming house, went onto a small table just past the front door entrance. It would have been relatively easy to pick up Muriel's mail and get access to her credit card. When Muriel did receive her credit card statement, she knew that she hadn't taken out these subscriptions or made a donation to the United Way, and she filed another report with the police. Muriel then began receiving strange letters and she was disturbed enough by them to have all her mail forwarded to a mother's apartment in West Vancouver. A bizarre handwritten letter sent to Muriel just three weeks before her death started with these words, read by Mark Dunn. Hi, scum. You're now 40. We hope and pray that you start acting like an adult and not like a teenager. We also hope you stop smoking. You stink. 
Marjorie Lindsay was upset when she opened and read the letter, but after discussing it with her ex-husband Eric, she decided not to show it to Muriel. It was a decision that she later regretted. A few months before her death, Muriel's father was visiting from New York, where he now lived. He told the Vancouver Sun's Kim Bolin in 2006 that he and Muriel had walked around Stanley Park and were coming back along Denman Street in Vancouver's West End when an older man started chasing after her, calling her name. Muriel bolted down the street, and when Eric finally caught up to her, she refused to talk about it. In 2006, RCMP Constable Beth Parslow of the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit was in charge of Muriel's file. She told reporter Kim Bolin that she believed all of the strange incidents were somehow connected to Muriel's murder. She asked that anyone who worked with Muriel and was being subjected to this type of stalking and harassment, now or in the past, to come forward to police. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. On the day after Valentine's Day, Muriel worked the afternoon shift sorting letters at the main post office on West Georgia Street. She finished at 11pm and, as she did most nights, Muriel and a co-worker walked through downtown Vancouver to their homes in the West End. The two parted company when they reached Muriel's house. Muriel and Marjorie spoke on the phone every day, so when Marjorie repeatedly failed to reach her daughter, she started to worry. Marjorie and a friend drove to Muriel's place on the Saturday afternoon. They got a key to her apartment from the landlady. Muriel's body was blocking the door, and they had to push their way in. Police believe the time of death was around 12.15am on Friday, February 16th, 1996. Muriel died from several blows to her head and larynx. Two days after Muriel's murder, one of the crime scene investigators had returned to her house to finish processing the scene. He was startled to hear a noise coming from behind a refrigerator. When he pulled out the fridge, he found Muriel's second cat. The space was too tight for the cat to have got there by itself, and investigators believe that Muriel's killer had pulled out the fridge and put the terrified cat behind there before pushing it back against the wall. Muriel's mother Marjorie adopted the cat, and that must have brought her and the poor little animal some comfort. Muriel's brother Kent Lindsay sent me a letter that his father had written to his mother in March of 1998, two years after their daughter's murder. Eric was convinced he knew who murdered Muriel. This is part of his letter, read by Mark Dunn. I cannot forgive myself for failing to alert the police about the death threat sworn at Muriel by her Mexican neighbour Juan, who harassed her from the day he arrived in that city-owned house. With uncharacteristic candour, Moo confided the threat to me while we chatted about Juan and the neighbour upstairs, Jerry, 
both of whom constantly disturbed her in different ways. On hearing Juan's menacing words from her, I went right to her phone, and I was dialing 911 when she demanded to know what I was doing. I said, I'm calling the police. No one in this country can threaten another with death. It's against the law. Muriel leapt across the room, shouting, don't do that, Dad, and grabbed the phone from my hand and slammed it down onto the cradle. That exchange between she and I took place on my last visit with her at 1120 Comox. She was very angry with me, so rather than argue with her, I resolved I would go to a pay telephone when I went outside and called the death threat to police. Why I never did it, I regret in the depths of my being. For I'm convinced Juan carried out his threat on February 16th, 1996. He carefully chose the date and time, knowing Muriel's work and homecoming routines. In addition, his brutal battering and her screams would be muffled by the noise of a raucous party Jerry was staging up over her two-room apartment. Yet one person who knew Muriel and where she lived told me that she heard a scream from 1120 Comox that night while walking to her own place nearby. I suspect the murderer's chief reason for attacking when he did was that he had learned something that only Muriel and her landlady, Miss Stella Henry, were privy to in their house. Muriel was to vacate 1120 Comox on March 1st for another apartment she'd been introduced to by a friend. The mouse who'd been helplessly tormented for years by the cat, the killer, was about to escape the trap in which she'd been tortured so long. In the letter, Eric gives the full name of the man he believes murdered his daughter, as well as the name of the other man who lived upstairs, and who he believed had also stalked and harassed Muriel. Because neither man has yet to be charged, I have left their last names out of the podcast. There were several possible suspects, and police looked carefully at the other residents of the Comox Street house. One, the man who caused Muriel such concern, returned to Mexico shortly after her murder, and as far as the family is aware, remains a suspect. When I was researching Muriel's murder in 2015 for my book Cold Case Vancouver, Muriel's cousin Carol told me that she was surprised to learn that before leaving Canada, one had taken the time to wipe down his entire apartment, leaving no prints behind. Muriel's memorial service was held at the Hollyburn Funeral Home in West Vancouver. She was a very private person and she hadn't told anyone outside her immediate family that she had been treated for cancer. She used to wear a baseball hat backwards to work to hide her hair loss from the chemo, and her co-workers had just thought that that was her style. When her co-workers found out that she'd survived cancer, they attended her memorial service and raised $12,000 to donate to cancer research in Muriel's name. The media paid little attention to Muriel's murder. A short brief, just five sentences long, came out on page 19 of the Vancouver Sun, three days after she was killed. The article was titled Motive Sorting Slaying, and it quoted Vancouver Police Department Constable Anne Drennan, saying she had lived there eight years and was a quiet person who was close to her mother. Muriel went the short article, was Vancouver's sixth homicide victim of the year. It was only February. The next article came out on the one-year anniversary of her death. It's read by Mark Dunn. When Muriel Lindsay of Vancouver told her co-workers she was being stalked, few believed her. Instead, they began avoiding her, thinking she was paranoid and borderline hysterical. But they were all shocked when the 40-year-old postal worker was found dead in her West End apartment a year ago. She had died from blows to the head and was discovered by her mother and a friend. 
The death of Muriel Lindsay was ruled a homicide, one of at least 67 in the Lower Mainland last year. Muriel Lindsay wasn't the only member of a family to be murdered. When her great-grandfather, Detective Richard Levice, was shot to death in August 1914, he became the fourth Vancouver police officer killed in the line of duty. At a little before 11pm, Levice and his partner, Detective Malcolm McLeod, were investigating a stabbing. The suspect, known to police as Mickey the Dago, had stabbed another man in a fight at a cafe earlier that night. When the detectives arrived at Mickey's shack on Alexander Street, McLeod stationed himself outside in case the suspect made a run for it, while Levice searched the house. When Levice opened the bedroom door, he was holding his revolver in his right hand and flashlight in his left. Mickey was waiting for him and shot him in the chest with a sawed-off shotgun. Levice died from gunshot wounds to his chest two days later. Levice, who was only 28 at the time of his death, left behind his wife Estelle and their three children, Cyril, Carol and May. The kids were all under five and May would become Muriel's grandmother. Detective Levice was awarded the Vancouver Police Medal of Valour by the Police Commission and it was given to Estelle, then 27, who shortly after her husband's death was hired by the Vancouver Police Department. Estelle, who stood just a little over five foot in height, proved to be a tough little Irish woman. She worked as a matron in the women's division from 6pm at night to 6am in the morning, six days a week. She worked there for the next five years until 1919, when she married fellow police officer John McClellan. Richard and Estelle's oldest son Cyril was an actor, and with his brother Carol, moved the family to England. Carol had a long career in radio and television at the BBC and became quite famous in the 1940s and 50s, at one point hosting his own television show called the Carol Levice Discover Show, a talent show for young people. Muriel May was also amazing. Muriel Lindsay's grandmother, as mentioned earlier in the podcast, was a hugely successful realtor and a shareholder of West Vancouver's Panorama Film Studios. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. If you have any information about Muriel Lindsay's murder, please call the Vancouver Police Department at 604-717-3321. If you don't want to leave your name, you can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or visit their website, solvecrime.ca. Cold Case Canada is based on original research and interviews that I conducted for my book, Cold Case Vancouver. If you'd like more information about this and other major crimes, check out my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada, and please subscribe to the podcast. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced 
that in 1934, there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher.